Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Lone Screenplay Nominee Podcast, where we talk about films that were solely nominated for an Oscar in the writing categories. I'm your host, Matthew Anderson, and today we have a very special guest, uh, another prof- uh, another uh, instructor who had taught uh, me at Stevenson University, Christopher Ernst, who is an associate professor in the film and movie image department at, Steven- at Stevenson University. Uh, and... Yeah, so like I said, w- uh, welcome to the show, uh, Christopher, uh, Professor Ernst. You, you I, call you call you call you? me Chris. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, Hold Chris. On. Okay, yeah. yeah it's, okay, well, welcome to the Thank show. You. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking, Matt. Really good to be here. Yeah, it was. It's nice that you you were able to uh, squeeze in a little bit of time to be on the show. Uh, absolutely. I'll, I'll try to make it at least an hour at most, oh. so I'll make sure you're not on here too long. For sure. Um, but again. Grateful to be to have you uh, be on the show, uh, but for our listeners out there who are wondering who's this professor, who's this Christopher Ernst um, to you, Matt, yeah. or what does he do? I, I just want to go over the basic sure. you know, questions I usually have for our guests. Uh, would you care to explain to our audience what exactly it is you do for a living? Yeah, so I am a professor of film production at uh, Stevenson University in the School of uh, Design, Arts, and Communication. This is in Maryland, uh, where, uh, as many of you listeners may know, Matt Anderson uh, was a student. He graduated from there. Um, and uh, so I teach mainly production courses uh, in film and moving image, uh, though we do incorporate a lot of theory in there. Uh, I have a specialty sort of in uh, midnight movies, cult cinema, experimental cinema, underground cinema. So I teach an experimental cinema uh, course and uh, sometimes I'll teach some special topics courses on like midnight movies and stuff like that. But the majority of what I teach is film production. So I'm working with cameras. I work as a cinematographer uh, and a practicing filmmaker, um, you know, and I've shot a couple of films as a cinematographer. So, uh, yeah, a lot of the tech stuff, but merging the tech with creativity and uh, thinking about films and all that good stuff. Awesome. And I'm just looking through here uh, real quick on your Stevenson University faculty. Uh, it says here you also worked for MTV Networks as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. So I, I worked for MTV for uh, a while. Um, and then uh, within sort of corporate mergers and things like that, I ended up working for uh, uh when I before I left Viacom, uh, but within that, within being part of that major media conglomerate, I got to work for a lot of the uh, different brands. So not just MTV, but like Comedy Central, uh, Nickelodeon, uh, Paramount Pictures, and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I spent almost a decade in the media industry working uh, out of New York City. Uh, I was teaching at the same time. I taught at the I taught at the the new school uh, before I had a kid, so I had a lot of extra time um, uh, or more time. I taught in the graduate program uh, in documentary studies there. I taught uh, cinematography. Um, So, yeah, I did that for a while, and then I decided I wanted to teach full-time, and so I ended up at Stevenson, where I met you. Yes. Uh, Yeah, I had a couple classes with you. I think there was uh, it was at least one I had when we got back to Stevenson after COVID hit was was sort of done, and we were, you know, we were only allowed to wear masks within yeah. the uh, the classes. Uh, do you guys still have the mask uh, policy? No, thank goodness. Um, you okay. know, we're pretty much back to quote unquote normal. Um, you know, you you were there during one of the strangest times that I have ever taught, and I've been teaching for a couple of decades now. Um, uh, so you know, the fact that you survived that is a testament to your you know your strength um, uh, because that was a, certainly a weird time, particularly trying to teach film production itself. Uh, but uh, yet yeah, we're back to normal pretty much. 
much. Uh, most of the, um, you know, uh, film industry, as many of your listeners and you may know, you know, is sort of readjusting and there aren't as many uh, COVID limitations uh, as there were in terms of like, you know, SAG uh, policies and stuff like that. So, yep, getting, be getting back to yeah. normal, sort of. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we're getting back to normal slowly, especially with the two strikes we had over the last summer, which pretty much, which for a moment put my show on hold for a little bit. I was like, I need to find out and do some research on whether or not I'm able to do this, even though I'm not paid to do this at at the moment. Um, Doing that was doing that's doing good due diligence with you know in supporting because i I definitely supported both of those strikes and yeah that was uh that was another weird time but uh it's great yeah a a friend of mine was uh you know he was a strike captain for wga in uh, new york and really proud of what they were able to do and uh yeah that's great yeah no like i said i i could talk for hours about the the strikes and such but but we're not here for that uh we are here for uh something for you know the lone screenplay nominee yeah. podcast itself um the other question i did want to ask before we jump into our uh full discussion uh it's always tough to ask someone what their favorite film is and yeah, yeah. it's a pretty cliche answered question from about to ask what is your favorite genre yeah that's, a, that's I, I like that because i think that uh that really does help broaden uh the answer because it would be so hard for me to pick uh one film well i guess i could probably answer that with two things either i would say like uh, psychotronic film, which if people aren't familiar what that is, uh, uh, I think you can you can look up uh, the psychotronic film Bible uh, with a cover of which has a quote from John Waters on it. So if it gives you any idea, oh. well, and so psychotronic film would kind of cover a lot of different cult and midnight movies. So you're thinking talking about everything from you know uh, weird video nasties from like the 70s and from Britain, you know, to uh, Hodor like art film to uh you know john waters so probably i would say like midnight movie fringe film underground film and within that specifically like horror films to give you an idea uh like one of my films is uh in the catalog uh at trauma pictures uh if that makes if that gives you any idea trauma films being famous for um uh, the toxic avenger and Sergeant Kabuki mm-hmm. Man, and a lot of uh, really interesting kind of B movie Roger Corman esque type stuff. I don't know if that that's nice. a, that's a convoluted answer, but hopefully that describes yeah, no, no, it pretty well. That's, that's, yeah, yeah, that's that's a good enough yeah. answer. Uh, I you know it, it definitely is a bit different from you know I've already had two guests I think in a row earlier in this in the the show tell me that like I think it was like horror was like one yeah. of their favorites and I'm like that's funny it's like two years or two uh, two guests in a row yeah um I did get a chance did I ever tell you I got a chance to meet uh or see John Waters in person oh fantastic um yeah I I got a chance to see him I was uh uh I was at an event back it was like 2019 of that fall yeah. and I was chaperoning or I was helping out making sure that like they were doing a whole raffle yeah. thing and John Waters, I was told, like, right then and there was like, John Waters might be here tonight. We don't know. Oh, that's very cool. And then as soon as he showed up, I was like, oh, my God. And it was as soon as he passed, as soon as, you know, came into my my uh, into my eyesight, it just did like a simple nod mm-hmm. and then just walked away. And then I was like, wow, yeah. like, you know, just just all the air just came right out of my body. And I was just like, that was a surreal that's experience. So cool. And the only the only re- reason why I even knew John Waters to begin with outside of his films was. His uh, uh, participation in the uh, uh, this film was not yet rated documentary. Yeah, yeah, where he was talking about one of his films that was, uh, you know, he tr- you know tried resubmitting, it and they're like still NC seventeen, yeah. and 
Absolutely. That's yeah. a great documentary and really interesting part of film history. And he's a really eloquent, you know, speaker. And, you know, besides being a great filmmaker, he really knows his film history. And he's a, you know, great uh, thinker about film and, you know, uh, the, the industry and stuff like that. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so without further mm-hmm. ado, we're going to go right into our discussion. Right. Uh, today, we're here to discuss your choice it is. of film. It is. The 1986 film, Crocodile Dundee, yep. uh, which is directed by, I had it right here, Peter Feynman. Yeah. I think I pronounced yeah. that. Yeah, and he didn't he didn't do too much out too too many. He was very much a uh an Australian director and he, you know, not to jump too much into the history of it, but he had a relationship <laughs> with the guy who was behind uh Crocodile Dundee, the one of the co-writers and star of it, Paul Hogan. Paul yeah. Hogan. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah well, well, don't worry, we'll get to that. Um so to our audiences out there, just want a reminder, once again, this won't be a beat-by-beat bulletin presentation like you hear on other channels, but we will be discussing major spoilers for our film talk. If you haven't seen the film yet and want to hear our full thoughts on it, watch the film first and then come back to hear us talk about it. I didn't know about this until right as I was prepping that it was on YouTube free with ads. Yeah. And I bought, I uh, rented a copy of it the other night oh. on, through Amazon Prime. Yeah, so I was like, yeah, Damn it, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah. But whatever, that's yeah. fine. Uh, let me get to my notes. So, like I said, production notes I'll get through, and then yeah. uh, I'll have some questions for you. So, Paul Hogan, who is the, as you mentioned, the co-writer and star of the film, came up with the idea of the movie when he was wandering around New York City, especially with the idea of a Northern Territory bushman arriving in town. Mm-hmm. What what would his interactions be like amongst the? Uh, uh, the New York savages, so to speak. Right, right. Um, and uh, ended up using his TV connections, including John Cornell, Peter Feynman, and Ken Shady. Uh, John and Ken would co-write the script with Paul, and Peter would be the film's director. Mm-hmm. Uh, filming started on July 13th in 1985 and would wrap on the 11th of October. And at the time, weirdly enough, Paul Hogan, Paul Hogan knew this would be a big hit around the world. Part of it was because they never had a movie that showed, a, a, you know, like a big light of Australia like yeah. this. Um, and indeed it would. It would make over $328 million on a budget of uh, $8.8 million. That's worldwide, by the way, uh, $328. And this was a success. And because of the success and popularity of the film, it would spawn this idea into a franchise with two sequels that they came out with. And a Super Bowl ad that happened about maybe five, ten years ago, mm-hmm. almost, uh, with Danny McBride and Chris Hemsworth in it. And outside of the lone writing nomination it got for the original screenplay category at the Oscars, the film received two BAFTA nominations for lead actor and original screenplay, along and was also nominated for three Golden Globes, winning one just for lead actor in a comedy musical. Uh so, yeah, and I'll just get through the log line real quick. Uh, an American reporter goes to the Australian outback to meet an eccentric crocodile poacher, uh, Mike, uh, it was uh, Michael J. Crocodile Dundee, <laughs> and invites him to New York City. So that is the log line of the movie. And I always ask my guests, obviously, I assume this was your, uh, you know, more, you'd seen this more than once oh, yeah. based on. Uh, your decision. Why, out of curiosity, out of all the films that uh, were presented to you in a list, why choose this one? Well, because this was, you know, I saw this film in the theaters uh, when I was a kid, and it really was, uh, you know, I was 
just the perfect age for it, I think, in terms of the Australia mania that was happening in the 80s at the time, because uh, it really was like all of a sudden, like everybody was, you know, into Australian things. And the the scene from the film, the, you know, that's not a knife. This is a knife. That was like yeah. that was a, you know, a live action meme that everybody was doing at the time. Um, so this actually this film was one of my favorites when I was a kid. I really liked this film a lot. Um, uh, and I really like the sequel to it as well, which is a really weird film because it involves like like uh, Colombian drug cartels and it's oh. like assassination plots. It's it's, it's kind of hilarious. I also think this film is kind of a. It's a a uh, a relic of the '80s in the sense that I f- I don't know if you could get a f- make a film like this these days. Like a lot of it has to do with the like weird exoticism of Australia that's you know happening uh, you know to uh, America. And I just yeah I just don't know if a film like this could get made again. So when I look at it, besides the fact that I really loved it when I was a kid, um, I think it's a really interesting example of an 80s film and i think it's kind of wild that it got nominated uh for best screenplay which original screenplay screenplay, which is you know and that being the one nomination it had uh it's it's it it seems like like uh kind of an anomaly to me especially with the other screenplays that were there um you know that it was competing against um it doesn't Mm -hmm. seem really like an award-winning film when i look back at it because it's kind of a goofy film when you think about it um uh uh and, you know, I guess when you watch it, it's a little dated, too. But I like all those things. Yeah, it, it is dated. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get to the, some of those aspects yeah. later. Um, I, I So this was my first watch I had seen. Um, I know my grandma had seen uh-huh. it. She was fascinated by what I thought of it. I haven't told her yet. Yeah. Uh, I will after I we're done recording yeah. here. But the... I'm, I'm glad you brought up the whole, I know we're jumping the gun a little bit whole here with the, like, you you know, you being surprised by it getting a lone screenplay nominee. Mm-hmm. I, when I, st- ever since I started the show, Chris, I'm not sure it, if you ever knew this, but sometimes, especially when the eighties and seventies and even the nineties, yeah. a film getting a lone screenplay nominee, you, you know, usually sent, you know, usually gets it because of this, like, I'm starting to notice they get it because of this popularity the film creates ah, around it. Okay. And, and, you know, especially with this being such a big success and yeah. everyone kept quoting it because uh, this film came out in I'm going to look up when it was. It was in like September. Yeah. So there was like enough momentum at the time, I'd assume, mm-hmm. to get into like why it got the lone screenplay nod. That makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. But but it always happens, yeah. and, you know, even with um. Uh, I'm trying to think like Glass Onion was another right. one where it's like it got the adapted screenplay nod because of its popularity uh, and it was based off the sequel May December, which just, you know, oh, it's sure. inducted into the uh, the lone screenplay nominee yeah. podcast. That was, you know, it was a little bit it didn't make any kind of money per se, mm. but it was enough. There was enough popularity or surrounding it when it came yeah. out. And it was like right on the cusp of like certain couple of categories. Although I will say it's even though, well, I'll share my thoughts on May, December down the road because I'll be doing it after the Oscars. But all I will say is that as much as I'm indifferent to it, I'm glad it knocked out another film, uh, Saltburn, Mm -hmm. which uh, dodged that bullet. (laughs) Um, But anyways, um, enough about that. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, spoilers for that uh, episode. So, uh, yeah, as far as this, like I said, it's my first time I'd seen it and I thought it was decent. I could definitely see at the time why it was such a big popular thing. And also too, we hadn't been bombarded by these like crappy fish out of the water type of stories to begin with. 
because I think this was, if I'm correct in saying it, it might have been one of the earlier proponents or films to have done this in like mainstream popularity from this generation um, for sure yeah i think so because like because the whole time watching it i personally you know there were aspects about it i did like and i appreciated yeah. like i you know there were uh i like paul hogan yeah. in the movie i thought he was very charismatic yeah. and i noticed that the way he was written is very much this um uh he can be a bit of a a, a rebel but he's not like an asshole right. in the character yeah. like with that character he's not like a bad person right. Per se, although, like I said, some of the questionable things he's done, like sure. checking out of a, a woman as a man, sure. or you know, the other yeah. way, and I thought, yeah, uh, yeah. it's a little bit dated. Oh no, it t- it's totally um, dated. Yeah, yeah. But but the but the other aspects to it of like you know him making sure that the the journalist was you know a lot you know making sure that she was able to survive in the jungle on her own and yeah. actually caring for the woman. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I thought that aspect of it was interesting, and but I I think for me. The biggest reason why I couldn't get myself attached to the film itself as a whole yeah. is that, and it, it, it kind of stems to like, again, time period. I get it. It was made back in sure. the 80s, but it's part of it for me was because it didn't really have much of a story to mm-hmm. it. And I'm not expecting every film to be that way. But at the same time, like I think of something like Licorice Pizza, where that doesn't have a narrative to it, but the gags are really funny, I thought. And I cared a lot about the characters. Not... Not that I didn't care about the characters here, I just didn't find that they were that interesting. It's pretty, sh- it's me. pretty shallow, and I mean, like, I'll, I'll, you know, I was nine when I saw it. You know, that tells you how yeah. old I am. Like, it was eighty six. I was born in seventy seven. I was nine, and I think that part of the reason I liked it so much. And listen, when I watched it again this past week, uh, it was mainly nostalgia that was mm-hmm. I, I was enjoying it for as a movie itself. Yeah, the characters are pretty thin. I think um, it's got, I think, pretty decent cinematography. And I forgot, I had forgotten who shot it. And he's actually quite a, a good uh, and reputable uh, Australian cinematographer that did uh, like uh, Master and Commander, Far Side of the World, and you know, wow. and you can see some of it in there, like you know, some of the lighting and some of the camera moves mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Uh, that you know, final scene where they're walking, and this is a big spoiler. They're like walking on top of people's shoulders and uh, to meet each other in a subway in this sort of romantic uh, ending. Um, and uh, do you remember that? No, I yeah, do. Yeah, I'm yeah. just, I'm, yeah, no, yeah, no, no, And so, like, just the way yeah. he shot it and stuff like that, uh, I thought was you know pretty interesting. But it's it, the story itself is pretty thin, and I think that's why, as mm-hmm. a kid, I was able to glom onto it, and I liked it because it was easy. It was kind of like. Uh, it had uh, really simple heroic um, stakes that were, you know, yeah. really just it's like almost a trope, uh, you know, one trope after another in some ways. And I think that was part of why I liked it. Uh, you know, this this and it's also he's kind of a superhero ish, you know, cartoonish figure, you know, if you really think about mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I the, the reason why I was given the the bug eyes was uh, not because of the scene you were describing, but I'm looking at it's Russell Boyd, like you said, Master yeah. Commander, the Far Side of the World. I didn't even realize it's the same cinematographer. Yeah. He did stuff like the remake to Doctor Doolittle. Yeah. He did Liar Liar. Yep. 
Yeah. Um, He's gone. Holy crap. Wow. Yeah. And he, and he also shot the uh, next crocodile Dundee movie. The second, which one. if, which um, uh, I was saying how much I like it. It has this gorgeous cinematography in Australia. Cause a lot of it takes place in Australia. And, you um, know, we're thinking back on it now as a cinematography professor and, you know, uh, cause I actually, after I watched this first one for the podcast, I checked out some clips from two because it made me, you know, sort of nostalgic for it. And there's some great like magic hour, uh, you know, beautiful shots of sunset and stuff like that. Uh, you know, really, really impressive that kind of doesn't fit with the goofiness of the film. Um, this is the second one I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah, but I, I will say though, like the the first one, one of the things I did enjoy about the movie, at least from the the beginning, was I did I, I personally appreciated the look to it, yeah. and and I was thinking to myself, I was like, wow, I got to admit, for especially in the first couple of shots, they're actually pretty good with some of the cinematography. Yeah. Now we know it's yeah, also yeah. point. Yeah. Um, and I love the way they introduced us to the character, right. um, you know, slowly over through exposition and even through like you know building that sort of like momentum building up to that you know moment where he comes in with the stuffed uh, crocodile or alligator whatever yeah. it was um and i thought that was pretty cool um and uh the other thing i have to credit the writers for even though again the characters are a little bit shallow mm-hmm. so to speak i did like that they were smart enough to not be to have uh uh to not dumb it down too much yeah. just because of like you know yeah. like the exposition it isn't so like too broadly stated right. um but also to like when they're doing the dance like when they when he's giving some of his backstory to the journalist when they introduce each yeah. other they're doing it through dancing yep. like a lot of things you want to give actors as the director and writers you want to give them you know things to play around yeah. with you know whether it's like drinking or dancing or move, whatever kind of movement or choreography there is so you don't make it just feel like two people are just standing or two people sitting and just talking yeah. and it's like it's very boring that oh, way yeah. but if you do it put some movement to it some energy to it even camera movements around the actors you you can get kind of a rhythm yep. going i'm just going through some of my notes here uh to see what else there was uh the at, at the bar though i did think it was uh <laughs> uh it was a it was a little uh funny line when he told the the one guy who was uh, making fun of uh crocodile dundee uh, and he said, and uh, Dundee said to the guy, uh, uh, "How would I know? Shit for brains." Yeah. <laughs> like that was that was funny, yeah. and you know, and and again, even with the whole like you know, just the way he's interacting with everyone at the bar, you could it already immediately establishes what kind of uh, uh, yeah, t- you know, character vibe he's he's he a he's really people. like I mean, it's it's per, kind of like all charisma the 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 crocodile Dundee character and. You know, uh, Paul Hogan was notable for being a, um, you know, comedian already. And he was he was fairly comfortable playing characters, uh, you know, that uh, I think are just these these sort of like exaggerated versions of himself. And this one, I think, was like the character itself was particularly based on this real life guy, um, Rod Ansel, I think, who was... uh, uh, and this was sort of the basis for why the Linda Kozlowski uh, called calls. Am I pronouncing her last name? Uh, Linda uh, Kozlowski uh, character who plays the journalist. She goes down uh, initially, I think, to uh, uh, because of a story that is you know uh, somewhat based on this real life guy Rod Ansel 
who was kind of, he, he was, you know, out in the bush and out back for like 72 days or something like that and survived. Or it was like a real life story that they, they loosely based the uh, Crocodile Dundee character on, but they really turned him more into this, like, you know, he's kind of like this, this, uh, uh, lone gunman, you know, the, the wandering, uh, the wandering hero, you know, who doesn't really have a home, can take care of himself, you know, wanders around the world. I always think of somebody like, you know, Jack, the Jack Reacher show recently, you know, yeah. like, wa- like wanders around, doesn't have much on his person, helps people out kind of thing. Uh, another one would be like, uh, the, the man with no yeah. name, uh, that Clint Eastwood exactly. plays in the uh, Fistful of Dollars, exactly. um, Good, the Bad, the Ugly. Yeah. Yeah, he, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, that's actually a really good point, though. Like the fact that they make him charismatic and the way the character is written fits what Paul Hogan is able to do, you know, because you've, we've seen actors, you know, uh, who've actually tried playing roles or even tried writing their own roles to where it's like, you know, it's like, all right, I can only, you know, put myself within a certain parameters as an actor. And there's a lot of actors who can do you know like Daniel Day Lewis, Tilda Swinton, who can right. do any role that they you're throwing at them? Uh, even Joaquin Phoenix is another one who it's like he, he could do any role, well, almost any yeah. role. Um, I wouldn't really count Napoleon as one, but then again, that was not his problem, right. or his fault <laughs> with that film. Um, but the uh, but no, like you know, a lot of these actors, and yeah, Paul Hogan is just one who was like, all right, I'm just gonna write to my strength yeah. as a character and work and that way too and he I, never really but, had much of a i mean at least i you know i tracked him to some degree and he didn't really have many hits uh, of any sort after this like he had mm-hmm. another uh star i think the f- only other starring role that i can think of he had is where he was kind of like a warren Beatty, heaven can wait angel type trope story if you know that uh one where i think he's he was like a criminal and he comes back as an angel or something like that and this was like early 90s maybe uh i don't think it almost did too an well. almost an angel there you go yeah and it didn't yeah. do too well um and then he tried to make uh his comeback with crocodile dundee in la uh which was didn't do too well either um it's a shame you know uh i think he's you know he's charismatic guy but he just couldn't find anything else that really hit yeah sometimes you're in a, a role that's just too famous to where yeah. you're just like you know yep. kind of stuck in this like pigeonhole exactly uh kind of role because one actor i think of recently um maybe it's just because i uh i have him on the mind recently but like bradley cooper is one mm-hmm. who is like he's tried to avoid being pigeonholed you know because he's he's one that i personally thought he would be like the next gerard butler and sure. these like romantic comedies and action yeah. films but it's like no, he actually wants to direct. He wants to write. Yeah. He wants to produce with like Spielberg yeah. and, and Todd Phillips yeah. and all these right? you know, Guillermo del Toro, um, which is nuts. But yeah, no, a lot of actors try to do that, and sometimes it works, sometimes mm-hmm. it doesn't. Um, but yeah, it's yeah, it's a shame too because I I would have liked to have seen Paul Hogan do other things. Um, but you know, as long as he's happy with what he's doing. Oh then, yeah, sure, you know, exactly. That's fine. Yeah. Um, you know, no, no need to, uh, you know, risk your your own life for my own entertainment. <laughs> right. You know, unless you love doing that, right. like Tom Cruise. Right. But you know, um, I'm just going through the some of my other notes. Uh, the can so later on in the film when we see uh Mr. Dundee uh in the middle of the night with the reporter seeing these poachers coming in and you know killing all these uh, kangaroos. It, it was. I thought it was a little bit funny with the uh, when uh, Mr. Dundee had you know 
placed like a fake uh, kangaroo corpse. It looked like, and then had like a gun. Yeah, yeah. It. I thought that that was it's funny. Um, and the other aspect I did like in the writing that I have to give credit to was I like that they established the reporter character as uh, someone who was able to handle her own without you know forcing in a lot of exposition or like fo- forcing these like you know like writing techniques that you would do to establish the character. Like you're doing a lot of telling, but not a lot of Mm -hmm. showing. And one aspect was an example for me was when, uh, uh, Dundee told the the woman, uh, you know, take the gun. You're going to, you know, just in case, you know, uh, if you just fire some shots up in the air and I'll, I'll be there to rescue it. And she, you know, sort of cocks the gun and fires it close to his foot and without any dialogue. And it's there to establish of like, yeah, she, she's able to handle her own. And I'm like, yeah, there you yep. go. Show, don't tell. You know, I, I like that. Great point. And, yeah, that's a really good example. Yeah, which is a shame because, like I said, a, a lot of, like, modern movies, like, I was on a podcast episode. The Well, the last one I did was Ace in the Hole, mm-hmm. where there were a lot of, you know, tricks that a lot of modern writers and directors could learn from, um, you know, from that movie. Like, you don't have to, you know, force in this whole commentary or this, like, bigger scope scale like you know be very simple with it you don't have to be too broad with it but you have to be simple enough to know you can create complexities out of that simple ideas that you're creating and it just seems like nowadays we're just kind of stuck into this world and hopefully we'll get out of it soon where a lot of writers are actually challenging themselves creatively and uh you know on the page and on the screen to say like okay let's let's be a bit more complex with this and we we trust our audience we don't need to spoon feed everything to them. absolutely yeah i'm totally with you on that and it can be hard too uh, you know for writers i think there's a difference too you know when trying to sell a screenplay versus you know trying to make something as marketable as you know yeah. uh, a, a spec script um you know it's it, it's a tough thing to do but i totally agree with you yeah i would love to see more of that yeah, and and we're also unfortunately in an era right now to where even if the script, even if the film is guaranteed made, it's like you have some asshole studio yeah. executive saying, "Oh yeah, um, even though we promised you the movie would be finished, yeah, we're gonna delete it for a tax write off." Right, right. Oh my god, um, don't even get me into that. That's just it's the worst part of the 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 money making side of the film industry. Which you know, I understand that it's got to be a business to some degree, but. Man, you know, gotta. If you don't respect your artists, you're gonna something's. I don't know. I I feel like karma's gonna get them at some point, but who knows? <laughs> no, I did well. Trust me. I I I've I've seen. Yeah, we've seen way too much history going yeah. on. I'm like, yeah, what comes around right, goes around. Right. Um, and uh, just looking through some of my other notes I had here, uh, the the joke about the uh, tribe friend of um uh, Mr. Dundee. When he said he didn't want to get his picture taken, I thought yeah. was yeah. Uh, was a little bit funny. Where he's like, "Oh no, no, I don't want my. T- I don't know. You can't do that. Why, uh, you can't take a picture. Why? Because the lens is covered." <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Like I, I was like, "Okay, all right, that's kind of funny." Well, it's playing. You know, it's funny because it's got like you know, it has these things like you mentioned where there's this sort of like uh, you know transphobic part later in New York where. Yep. You know, he's uh, uh, this whole thing about, you know, he's at a, a, ba- a bar that is a gay bar and there's a man who's dressed up as a woman and he gets is hitting on him. And, uh, you know, his he reacts through violence. And then later on, there's a very masculine woman and he grabs her crotch to see if she has male genitalia. And it's, you know, it's yeah. like this, so stuff like that. But then at the same time, they do these things that are trying to, you know, subvert 
uh, aboriginal stereotypes where, yeah, they have, you know, Mick treating this, his friend who's a, you know, aboriginal uh, Australian, you know, just the way, same way he would anybody else with a great deal of respect. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they make the guy smart and funny and have that little lens cap thing, you know, that sort of is a twist on the, you know, the natives don't want to have photos taken of them because it steals their souls type thing. So, you know, yeah. it's, it's, and I think very much like we said, it's, it is a, a it is a, a, a relic of its time uh, in the 1980s. So you get a little bit of both, a little bit of, you know, sort of pro- progressiveness and then a little bit of, you know, this kind of retrograde thing. Yeah. Even with the, uh, uh, the driver played by uh, Val- Reginald, Reginald Val Johnson. Johnson. Yes. Yeah. Which I had no idea he was in the movie and the moment he popped up, like, oh, yeah, wow, that's, that's him. That's right. You know? It was like with uh, when Carl Weathers showed up in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I'm like, wait, he's yeah, in this? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, what? yeah. Um, but yeah, Reginald Val Johnson, yeah. Uh, it was nice to see him in it. And it's funny because I looked at his credits after the movie. I'm like, so he did this two years before Die yep. Hard came out. And that that's what pr- you know put him on the map as an actor. Yeah. Um, yeah, but no, it was it was great seeing him in the film, mm. even though he only had like two major He's in it very, very short time as a chauffeur who ends up you know, he gets a little action. Yeah, it's 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 this yeah. funny scene where uh, he uh, um, basically like Mick is trying to chase this guy down. Uh, I think as he grabbed somebody's purse or something like that. And Reginald yeah. Vell Johnson, who is the uh, playing the limo driver, uh, you know, for um, the the Kozlowski's journalists uh, 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 that's driving Mick around New York City. So he gets out the the, the limo driver and he pulls off the um, on the back of the limo. There's what's supposed to be like an antenna spoiler, but it basically looks like a boomerang. And he pulls it off and he throws it and it hits the person who's running away and then he and Mick have some exchange where basically he's like, Oh yeah, I used to run with a gang in the Bronx or something. And Mick was like, I thought you were part of a tribe, which is kind of, it's like yeah. this weird, like, you're like, Oh, Oh, you know, it's yeah. supposed to be nice, but it sounds kind of icky. Uh, but it is cool that yeah. he at least got that. I always loved the, when he gets out and throws the, uh, the car antenna and it's like a boomerang and it hits the guy as a nine year old kid. I love that. Yeah, no, I no, I can see that. Yeah, I mean, hell, I was as like a nine year old kid, I was excited to rewatch like Jumanji right. and see all the books be demolished by the the stampede. Yeah. Like that was like such a cool effect. Like wow, that was yeah. they're coming right at yeah. me. Um, but the uh, yeah, and then okay, so one question I always have to ask myself every time this comes up because I I never. I, the only time I've ever been out of the country was mm-hmm. when I went to go to Hawaii in a, oh, the last couple months ago. I I never know why the steering wheel is on the other side of the the car. I I never like even watching it. I'm like, wait, why yeah. is that a thing? I don't I don't get it's, that. I I never understood it. You know, there's I'm sure there is a uh, uh, valid reason for it, but I've always just assumed it's you know we uh, a different cultural thing. How some people you know some languages read up down some read left right it's just something that sort of develops along the way but you're right there there might be some like real you know technological physiological reason uh in terms of engineering when cars were being invented that it happened on the other side i'm not aware of but yeah it's like half and half there's some places where you find that and some places where you don't uh even amongst europe and i have no idea why uh there is that difference 
I'm sure there's a reason if you look if you go if you if you search it up. If I Google, I'm it, sure yeah. there's there's some some very logical reason for it. Yeah, <laughs> there'll probably be some uh, answer out there. Um, you know, some guy would be like, well, just because I wanted yeah, to, right? Yeah, know? and it could be that. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like the it's like the whole red wagon theory I always bring up, where like the guy is like, all right, I want you guys to think, like, why did I, cre- you know, you know, create this like uh, red wagon? Why did I paint this, the, this or as it is? And everyone comes up with their own theories. Like, that's interesting, but I just, you know, I just saw it in the, uh, out of my window. Right. I was like, that's yep. it. Yeah, yep. I was like, okay, yep. that's what I'm doing yep. today. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so like I said, uh, I I think we we can uh, start uh, getting into our final thoughts, and then we'll get yeah. into some of the uh, awards traction for this. Um, I I'll, I'll let you say the the final word of the movie itself. So you know, I think it's uh, it is a unique movie that you probably couldn't get uh, in any time period except for the eighties. Uh, yeah, it's very dated, and I think it's got some um, you know uh, rather some thin characterization. Uh, in terms of the scripting, but it's, you know, one of those, uh, I think, greater than the sum of its parts uh, films that especially, you know, from my generation uh, or people that were growing up at the time, it holds, you know, uh, it holds its place in a lot of people's memory. So I think it's worth watching. Uh, maybe not something that you want to go out of your uh, <laughs> out of your way to rent, but watching it for free on YouTube with ads, uh, you might get a chuckle out of a couple of uh, 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 gags in it. And um, certainly uh, it will tell you a lot about uh, the beginning of the Australian craze in the 1980s, which extended to Yahoo Sirius. And that's another Mm -hmm. completely other episode you'll have to do at some point. But I don't think that got nominated for (laughs) the Academy Awards. So Yahoo Sirius. Yeah, Yahoo Sirius. If you want to look that up, this was the sort of the second phase of Australian mania in the United States in the 80s. There is this film uh, by this guy named Yahoo Sirius, and it was called Young Einstein. Oh yeah, that was definitely not nominated for no, any no, kind no, of no, award no, 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 no. But people like yeah. culturally, people thought of this as a follow-up sort of to Crocodile Dundee, and you know the Australian mania petered out pretty soon after that. Oh boy, yeah, they're like, yeah, you know, maybe we should have uh, uh, went somewhere else. Yeah. Ooh, Mad Max is on the horizon. Yeah, we're, we're getting another right. one. Right, right. There, yeah, you there you go. go. Let's, let's go back go. to that. <laughs> Yeah, let's go back to that. Um, yeah, as far as my overall thoughts of the movie, um, it was okay. Um, I definitely understood the appeal for this kind of movie, especially at that time when we weren't really used to seeing this kind of you know Australian culture, especially within uh, the United States, mm-hmm. and this being told as like a fish out of water type story. Like I, you know, Paul Hogan's very charismatic. Yeah. I would recommend it just based off of his uh, charisma. Um, but yeah, like I said, overall, it's, it's, it's fine. Um, you know, but yeah, so before we, 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 uh, head out and say the official final word, I'm just going to, uh, ask you a couple other questions regarding with the film. Mm -hmm. Would you say this was worthy of its sole nomination writing? Well, your explanation of it actually made me rethink, uh, you know, the fact that it was such a popular film. Uh, maybe that was reason enough for it to get an Academy Award nod, but as a screenplay, I don't think so. Um, you know, I I, I really yeah. don't. I when I think of the Academy Awards trying to celebrate the best in craft and creativity, uh, I don't think that the screenplay holds up. <laughs> no. Yeah. 
I mean, these are the same bimbos who gave Green Book Best Picture, Screenplay, yes. and Bohemian Rhapsody for Oscars, including indeed. Best Indeed, yeah, so indeed. I wouldn't, so I, you know, as much as I respect them sometimes, I wouldn't put them in such a high pedestal, in my right, opinion. Right. Um, these are the guys who thought that the that editing in Bohemian Rhapsody was a masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. Like, True oh enough. my God, chef's kiss, yeah. you know. Um, it was interesting, though, to see, uh, and first off, and also I also agree with, Chris, I I definitely do see the reason why I got nominated. I personally probably wouldn't. Mm -hmm. But then again, I'd have to go through the whole 86 lineup of films overall. Yeah. Well, the other the other screenplays I I looked to see and one of them was I mean, well, a couple of them. One is Oliver Stone's Platoon, which didn't win. Yes. And the other is Hanif Karishi's My Beautiful Laundrette, which for me is one of the uh, one of the finest screenplays i mean i love hanif karishi as a writer in general um uh i'm not a huge woody allen fan never have been regardless of any uh you know controversy or uh, uh any of that uh hannah and her sisters is what won so um which is yeah. not i even if you're if you like woody allen you're picking a woody allen film it's not i i wouldn't pick that one but hey you know he was a very popular oh yeah by the academy in the 80s and, for sure he was a darling you yeah. know yeah, he he won like multiple Oscars. Yeah. Uh, I won't say what the name is, but it, unless if someone's like a really di- uh, you know digs deep really hard, uh, my next episode I'll be doing might be on a Woody Allen mm. film. Um, so yeah, but yeah, no, like it made sense why Woody Allen won that year yeah. for Hannah and Her yeah. Sisters and Platoon. You know, like yeah. I, I I know we're not supposed to really like go out on a limb and say like, ooh, I think this is what's going to happen for this upcoming Oscars, but I'm going to say. Uh, Chris Nolan's going to follow the route of Oliver Stone for Platoon, mm. where they gave him director mm-hmm. and screenplay goes to someone yep. else. Yep. Um, yep. And then Salvador. Have you seen Salvador? I have not. No, I actually haven't. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The okay, Oliver yeah, Stone. I, yeah. The, the Oliver Stone pick. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'll, um, yeah, I'll have to watch it one day on my own to see why it got in. But uh, yeah, I'm looking through the rest of the what they chose the Oscars. Uh, Paul Newman finally got his uh, overdue Oscar win, even though I, I personally would have given it to him for the hustler, yep. even though he's, I like him in color money, but lead actor, especially recently have gone for the more yeah. overdue narrative of like, you know, Oh wait, this actor's how old? Yeah. We haven't given him an Oscar. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's throw him the win. Um, <laughs> it looks like that might be this. Yeah. Year. yeah, yeah right. Let's see. Um, yeah, uh, and then Marley Matlin won for Children of a Lesser God. I remember that was. A, uh, I remember that happening in real time. Like that was a big deal. Uh, uh, yeah, sure as, as being like I think she was the first deaf, uh, you know, uh, actress to win Best uh, Actress. So yeah, I remember that being a big deal when it happened. I'm pretty sure she might be the only one until Troy Kotzer did it. Yeah, for right. Coda, exactly. Which ironically, Marley Matlin was. Was this coast? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I'm just looking through to see what else was that year. Uh, Top Gun yep. was that year. Uh, Room with the View, which I remember actually kind of enjoying it a lot. Yeah. Um, and then Aliens was another yep. one, uh, which was another popular movie. Which, in my opinion, is probably the only good alien movie in that franchise because I'm not the biggest fan of Ridley Scott's uh, first one. 
Um, I know it's kind of a hot take on here to the public. I, but I, I respect all hot takes about films, you know? <laughs> Um, even if they're wrong, even, well, you know, it's, yeah, for me, filmmaking, there's, there's craft, uh, and subjectivity. And, you know, as a person who loves midnight movies, some at sometimes trash is, is what I want to see. So, you know, um, but yeah. Uh, and what else there was, um, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to, I feel like there was another, and now I'm looking, but I feel like there was another big movie that came out in that uh area. oh yeah it was stand by me which didn't get yep. uh nominated for a lot but at least for me that was a big movie culturally when that came out yeah yeah stand by me was also a lone screenplay nominee oh. that year as well and i think my beautiful one laundretta my beautiful laundrette it? yeah yeah yep, yeah yeah which is like yeah, it was alone yeah yeah that was like um, a in that, that was like a British. Um, if people haven't seen that, it's like a, sort of a British art house uh, film. Um, yeah, very very you know well received critically. And the other thing too, I, I ever since I started the show, and I might have mentioned on the Ace of the Hole episode back in the fifties through like the eighties, it was very popular for a lone screenplay nominee to happen. Mm-hmm. But now that we're in, especially now that we're in an era of a like you know, more than five best picture nominees. It's a lot tougher for a film to get just a screenplay nomination. Like if the field hadn't been expanded up to 10 nominations or even, you know, if we had just five, I think something like past lives, you know, that we're getting this upcoming year probably would have been just a lone screenplay nominee, but because it's expanded to 10, it's like, Hey, you're, you're actually able to get in for best picture as well. Um, So, but yeah, yeah, no, like I said, it's, you know, um yeah got some uh got some good movies this year got some uh weird picks um you know and uh yeah and it was it was interesting too when i finally saw the color of money not to get sidetracked yeah, yeah. real quick um i was uh i managed to talk with someone who had watched all the nominees that year for lead actor and they you know gave me the perfect like pretty much to the bottom uh, line of what why Paul Newman won him it's because it was just such a weak category yeah. to begin with and they weren't willing to vote for William Hurt because he had just won recently yep. and Bob Hopskin and and Dexter Gordon were just not that much of a big contenders and James Woods is like okay no one really watched Salvador because yeah. it bombed at the box yeah. office um but but still it's interesting to look back at the history and uh oh, completely we'll, we'll 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 keep doing it again after this oscars is done to be like how did this movie or how did uh again i'm just gonna go out on a limb and say how did oppenheimer win best picture and it's like hmm, yeah yeah it was kind of an easy pick if you actually looked at the history yeah. um yeah i i know i'm immediately dating the episode but it's like right now it's like who's winning picture this year right like outside of oppenheimer like nothing right yeah yeah even even my even my grandpa even my my parents went out of their way to see oppenheimer they're like okay yeah i know it's true it it really just seems that way i can't think of any other scenario but yeah that's uh that's pretty much it for the oscars of uh 86 uh So yeah, uh, any any last words you had to say about the year as a whole? Or well, the other one that I forgot that I you know, and it wasn't a film that I saw at the time, but ended up being 
very important film for me was uh, David Lynch's Blue Velvet came out uh, and he was uh, nominated for oh, best. Yeah. He was nominated for best director uh, and did yeah. not win. And, you know, he wasn't really on my radar at age nine or ten. But, yeah, that was. Uh, and I think the other one is The Mission, which is a really great film. Yes. Roland Joffe's The Mission. Um, yeah. Uh, and again, one that I did not. I was not aware of at the time, but later, yeah, both of those films, uh, you know, and I, I think honestly, I mean, yeah, Platoon, you know, deserves its accolades, but you know, both the mission and blue velvet, I think, you know, were strong contenders. I think I'll have to look into my history later on. And if I ever get back to this question again on the show, I'll answer it. But I think David Lynch might've been the only, or one of the few directors to just get a, lone directing nominee you may be right i don't know else. yeah i don't know that's actually um, yeah yeah i don't think he because he i don't think he, he did no. it he did it again for uh uh was it mulholland drive mm-hmm. which was even like wow like i can't believe he even made it into yeah. that lineup but yeah good for him yeah man. yeah um i haven't seen the only other film i've seen from him is Eraserhead, which is a very weird fucked up little film yeah. uh and Quite honestly, I get why some people aren't really vibing with David Lynch as a filmmaker. I respect him a lot, especially after watching some of his short films. I'm like, okay, if nothing else, I respect the hell out of Mm -hmm. you for what you do. Uh, I may not agree with you on your whole, you know, you're not able to experience a full film on your phones kind of thing, but... um, that's you know, a great that's... clip of him saying that yeah oh, well watch but... a film on your fucking phone yeah it's hilarious yeah. I, i'm a i'm a yeah. huge david lynch stand but i also understand why some people don't like him it's you know film to me is sometimes like music and you know there's some people that mm-hmm. really really like the beatles and don't like the stones there's some people that really like the stones and don't like the beatles um and that's okay it doesn't it me you know you can yeah. still like you they still uh uh, uh it's, they're both still great yeah yeah, exactly. Yeah, film is, you know, like art. Yep. Well, yeah, just like art, film is subjective. Yeah. To some so. degree. is You know, you got to have stuff in focus, at least. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so that's that's the the end of our show for today. Uh, I want to, uh, once again, thank you again, Chris, for dedicating your time being here on the podcast. Before, uh, before we sign off, is there anything you'd like to plug in on where our listeners can follow you on, so to speak? Well, I mean, if you're interested in looking at uh, some of the films that I've made or links to them, you can go to uh, my personal website, which is Bright Rectangle for my production company, Bright Rectangle Films. You can go to brightrectangle.com. And, you know, I I also do appear on a podcast uh, quite frequently called Where Did the Road Go, which is uh, about um, uh, paranormal stuff, which is one of the things that is uh, one of the my uh, uh, uh one of my interests outside of filmmaking and that sometimes I make films about. So uh, if you're interested in paranormal uh, podcasts, uh, check out where did the road go? Nice. Uh, I'll have to, I'll definitely, uh, uh, well, I got plenty of time on my hands now at the moment, but I'll definitely be looking into some of that myself. Uh, As for me, you could follow me on and the show through Linktree under at Matthew nine, nine five, where you can follow along on all my social media accounts, such as Twitter and Letterboxd. On the same side, I've also provided a link where you can listen to more episodes of the show. And if you're interested in being in the hot seat like Chris has today, let me know. And hopefully we can arrange that happening soon or in the future. In the meantime, we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode and we hope to see you at the movies. Take care, guys. Bye.